The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It is good to see all of you. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege this morning of leading us as we read and we teach from God's Word. So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible. As you're getting settled, make your way to the New Testament book of Galatians. If you have a Bible, you open up to the middle and head right. Head right past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Begin to slow down as you get through Acts. You'll come to the New Testament book of Galatians. It was the first letter that the Apostle Paul we know of, at least, wrote to the churches that he had been a part of establishing through the preaching of the gospel. And we're spending our time uh, this spring, summer, and probably this fall working our way through this great letter, uh, which many have called the, the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. And so we're taking our time to understand what God has for his people through the Apostle Paul in this letter. And so as we pick it up this morning, let's begin this morning by praying together and And then we'll see what God has for us in Galatians chapter 3. Father, we thank you again for the the rich privilege that it is that we have by your grace to be here gathered together. And so, Lord, we ask that we don't want to take it for granted. And and so, please meet us in the expectation that we have that you, by your spirit, through your word, would continue to do the work of changing our hearts. Lord, let us not walk out of here the same way we walked in. We know that any transformation into the image and likeness of your son is it's a miracle and it's due to nothing but your mercy and your grace, and it has to be worked out by your spirit. So we ask this morning for your glory and for our increased joy, you would do that. You would meet us in that this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we continue this morning in Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to do something a little bit different as we begin. I'm going to read something to you, and as I read it to you, and it's not from Galatians chapter 3, as I read it to you, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to listen and see if in anything that I read, you connect in the slightest way with it, all right? I'm just going to let you listen and and see if there's anything in here that, that sounds familiar to you, okay? I'm going to read an extended portion of a, of a chapter of a book called How People Change by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. And I'm, I'm reading this portion because they're, they're kind of exposing and describing some, some particular challenges that can often be found in the life of God's people today. And I want you to listen to see if any of it resonates with you. It's going to go like this. You want to know the church calendar. All you need to do is look at Jim's schedule. Now, they're going to use names. They're their names, all right? So if I read your name, I'm not thinking about you. Probably. You want to know the church calendar, just look at Jim's schedule. Jim's faithful and is giving and a willing volunteer when work needs to be done around the church, but Jim's world and God's world very rarely ever meet. All of his church activities have little impact on his heart and how he lives his life. This kind of Christian formalism It blinds us to the seriousness of our spiritual condition and our constant need for God's grace to rescue us. Jim sees his church participation simply as one healthy aspect of a good life. But there's no noticeable hunger for God's help and his need in any other area. For Jim, the gospel is reduced to participation in the meetings and ministries of the church. Now Sally, Sally's a walking list of do's and don'ts. She has set rules for everything in her world. They're her way of evaluating herself and everyone around her. In fact, her children live under the crushing weight of her own legalism. Even to them, God is a harsh judge who places unreasonable standards on them and then condemns them when they can't keep them. There's very little joy in Sally's home because there's no grace to actually celebrate. Sally thinks that performing her list gives her good standing with God, and she has no appreciation, ultimately, for the grace given to her in Christ. This is what happens with legalism. It completely misses the fact that no one can satisfy God's requirements. While Sally rigidly keeps her rules, her pride and her impatience and her inability to earn God's favor go unnoticed. Legalism forgets the need for our hearts to be transformed by God's grace. Legalism is not just a reduction of the gospel. As we've seen in Galatians, it's another gospel altogether where salvation is earned by keeping the rules that we've established. 
Now, Christine. Christine careens from emotional experience to emotional experience. She's constantly hunting for the next spiritual high, the next dynamic encounter with God, and because of this, she never seems to stay in one church very long. She's much more a consumer of experience than a, consumer, than a committed member of the body of Christ. Yet, in between the dynamic experiences that she has, her faith often falls flat. She struggles with discouragement and often finds herself wondering if she's even a believer. Despite the excitement of the powerful moments, she's not necessarily growing in faith and character and love. Biblical faith is not stoic. True Christianity is dyed with all the colors of human emotion, but you can't reduce the gospel to dynamic emotional experiences. As the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Word of God impacts us, most of the changes in our hearts and lives take place in the littlest moments of life. The danger of what they're calling mysticism is that it can become more a pursuit of experience than a pursuit of Christ. And so now it reduces the gospel to a dynamic emotional and spiritual experience. Do you hear the pattern of the reduction and the shifting away from the simplicity of the gospel? Surely, Shirley stands on the right-to-life picket line wondering why more Christians aren't there with her. Of course, she feels the same about every other protest that she can find in her town. These causes define for her what it means to be a Christian. Her constant refrain is stand up for what's right wherever and whenever it's needed. There's something very admirable about Shirley's willingness to devote time, energy, and money to stand up for what is right. But on a closer examination, her Christianity is more of a defense of what's right than a joyful pursuit of Jesus. The focus of this kind of Christian activism is always on external evil. And here's the problem. Whenever you believe that the evil outside of you is greater than the evil inside of you, a heartfelt pursuit of Christ will be replaced by a zealous fighting of all the evil that you see. A celebration of the grace that rescues you from your own sin will be replaced by a crusade to rescue the church from all the ills of the world around it. Christian maturity becomes defined as a willingness to defend right from wrong. And again, the gospel is reduced to a participation in Christian causes. John. John's a biblical and theological expert. He loves the Bible, which is a very, very good thing. But there are things in John's life that don't seem to fit. Despite his dedicated study of Christianity, John isn't known for being much like Christ. He has a reputation for being very proud and critical and intolerant of anyone who lacks his fine-grained understanding of the faith. John endlessly critiques his pastor's sermons and unnerves every single Sunday school teacher when he enters the room. In John's Christianity, communion and dependency and worship of Christ have been replaced by a drive to master the content and the systematic understanding of theology. John's a theological expert, but he's unable to live by the grace he can define with such technical precision. He's invested a great deal of time and energy mastering God's word, but he doesn't allow God's word to master him. Biblicism, and what they're calling it, is reducing the gospel to a mastery of content and theology. Now, Jen, Jen talks a lot about how many hurting people are in her congregation and how the church isn't doing enough to help them. She often says that Christianity is the only place to find real help and healing, yet she doesn't seem to find that healing herself. She spends much of her time discouraged and often leaves church meetings in tears. And she's right that our deepest needs and hurts are met in Christ, but she sees Christ more as her therapist than as her savior. Jen's convinced that her deepest needs come out of her experience of neglect and rejection, and so she sees herself more in need of healing than redemption. She's blind to how demanding and critical and self-absorbed she actually is. Without realizing it, she's redefined the problem that the gospel actually addresses. Rather than seeing our problem as moral and relational, the result of our unwillingness to worship and serve ourselves and the things of the world now in, re, instead replace the worship and serve of our, serving of our creator. Jin sees our problem as a whole catalog of unmet needs. But whenever you view the sin of another against you as a greater problem than your own sin, you'll tend to only seek Christ as your therapist more than you seek him as your savior. And Christianity will become more a pursuit of healing than a pursuit of godliness. And in this, again, the gospel is reduced to the healing of emotional needs. Last one. There's more. I'll, this last one. George. George was so thankful for the relationships he had found in the body of Christ. They were, they were unlike any friendships he had experienced before. He was so full of joy for his Christian family that he participated in any and every activity that could put him in contact with other believers. For the first time in his life, George felt alive. 
and connected. But George's trouble started when one of his closest friends was transferred out of state and another friend got married. When the small group ministry of his church began to be reorganized, George felt like he was stuck with a group of older married people with whom he couldn't relate. Church for George wasn't the same anymore, so he quit going to his small group. Before long, his attendance on Sunday began to wane. Going to church, he said, was like going to someone else's family reunion. George didn't realize it, but fellowship, acceptance, respect, and position in the body of Christ had replaced his dependence on communion with Jesus himself. The church had become his spiritual social club, and when the club began to break up, he lost his motivation to continue. For George, the grace of God and friendship replaced Christ as the thing that gives him identity, purpose, and hope. Again, the gospel had been reduced to a network of fulfilling Christian relationships. And so these men will go on to say, perhaps postmodernism, perhaps sexual immorality, perhaps these are not the greatest threats to the church in our day. Perhaps we're in a much greater danger from the subtle lies that flow from the subtle shifts in how we understand what the gospel really is. We, we may not have forsaken the faith, but we may have redefined it and redefined it in ways that are fundamentally different from the way the gospel is laid out in Scripture. If you could identify any aspect of yourself in any of those narratives, in any of those profiles that I read, there's good news. You can begin to sympathize with the churches and the men and the women in the churches that the Apostle Paul was writing the letter of Galatians to. They had begun to believe that God had done his part for their salvation, that God had made his move, and now it was up to them to make theirs. Good things for them defined by teachers who had come into the church like God's law, good things like the cultural realities that God had set apart for his people, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, good things had become main things in what they were being taught. And those main things had begun to replace, had begun to push out of the center the simplicity of faith in Christ alone for salvation. Those good things, like the things that we read in those stories, a love of God's word, a connection with his people, a standing up for that which best reflects God's holiness and justice, good things can often become main things. And when good things become main things and begin to push out confidence and faith in the simplicity of the gospel, they become destructive things and that's what's happening to the churches in Galatia and when Paul sits down to think about what he's hearing about what's going on in the church he begins to write this letter and he's writing it with a tone that's much more like a parent who sees their child running in the street when a parent sees their child running out into a crowded street they realize instinctively that that is not the moment for rational reasoning that's not the moment for calm back and forth trying to reason with the child why they shouldn't do what they do. You yell at the top of your lungs and you grab whatever body part you can grab and you pull it as hard as you can. And if you're like me, you show them the dead squirrel on the side of the road. <laughs> because Paul loves God's people, and even more because Paul loves the the God of grace, he's trying to help these churches see just how easily and yet just how deadly it is to shift their confidence away from the simplicity of being rescued, being saved, being made righteous in the eyes of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 3, Galatians, where we pick up this morning, we've, we've already seen that to help them see this and understand it, Paul reasons with them from their own experience of the gospel. You should understand by the way that God has already worked in you and is continuing to work in you and how you can see the grace of God continuing to work out in the life of his people. You should see that you need nothing else than the simple faith in Christ alone to know that you indeed are right with God. And from there then, Paul begins to build his argument not simply on their experience, but on the testimony of Scripture, on the testimony of what they had already known to be true, those teachers that were coming in and were now leading God's people astray, shifting the hope of their confidence away. Paul takes their arguments from God's Word and shows how their arguments actually prove the simplicity of the gospel. 
And we began to look at it last week. Look look down at chapter 3, verse 5. This is where we kind of cut the argument off, so to speak, last week. Paul says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We saw how those teachers were using the argument of Abraham as the father of God's people in his obedience to God as the model for what it actually meant for them as Gentiles, these, these believers, these men and women in the, in the Galatian churches, what it meant for them to actually be true followers of God and really part of God's people and that they had to obey certain laws to make them like Abraham if indeed they were going to be accepted by God. And Paul begins to reason from their own argument, no, 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 that's never been the case. God saved Abraham not by his obedience to the law, but by his faith alone in the God of grace. God saved Abraham through his faith before the law even came on the scene. And so we spent time last week just sitting in the jaw-dropping mercy of God. Even in the life of Abraham, that God has intended for all time to make righteous his people, not through their ability to earn his favor or earn his love, but through faith alone. And I cut the argument off there last week. But Paul wasn't done. Paul had more to say about this, and he had more thoughts and more questions to address, and he would continue to use God's word to help expose the foolishness of what these churches were beginning to believe in thinking that anything apart from faith in Christ alone was necessary to make them right before God. So we ended last week looking at how God accepts and makes righteous sinners by his grace through faith alone. And now Paul's going to pick it up in verse 7, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. And the thing that we see in verse 7 that Paul begins to stack onto this argument for these churches and for us is that this lavish grace of God, it knows no bounds. It's no respecter of ethnic boundaries, geopolitical boundaries, economic boundaries. This lavish grace of God is no respecter of the boundaries that we try to put in place. Verse 7, Paul says, know then, this is how he's kind of beginning to bring his last point to a head, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He's continuing this argument using Abraham as the model, the perfect point reference for what he's trying to say. And this had to upset the Judaizers who were coming to these churches and were, and were leading these churches astray because their claim to fame was being true sons of Abraham, true Israelites, true Drew, Jews. So they were telling these Gentiles to be truly accepted by God. You've got to become like us, like Abraham. And one commentator said Paul literally picked up their vocabulary and smacked them with it. And Paul declared that the only real children of Abraham are those who believe. Paul's building his argument. God will only accept us on the same basis that he accepted Abraham. Like father, like son. You never actually become a child of God by what you do. It's all based on what you believe. And what did Abraham believe? Paul says he believed God. And for you and I sitting here this morning to believe God is to believe that he indeed did send his son into the world to live the life that you and I were created to live and then to die in our place for the sinful life that we chose to live instead. For you and I on this side of the cross to believe God is to believe the gospel. And the point that Paul is trying to make, what he's trying to expose and the logic that he's using and the, where he's building this thing to and the conclusion he's trying to get to is that God's grace knows no boundary. No matter what markers we try to put around it, God's grace is no respecter of those things. It's by his grace through faith in his son that you and I are made right before him. So here's what that might mean more specifically for you and I sitting here as we're reading this that was written to a group of people thousands of years ago. For you and I, this, especially in Richmond, might sound more like this. You are not made right in the eyes of God. You are not justified before God because your mom and dad were Christians. That's really what it sounds like in Richmond. You are not made right before God because by his grace you were born into a Christian home. 
and because your mom and dad love Jesus. I'll never forget, I sat in my backyard with a couple of neighbors a few years ago having a barbecue. He's a fantastic guy. We love his wife as well. They're great friends even to this day. He's a native Richmonder, born and raised, got a Richmond name, got a family tradition in this city. UVA graduate, minored in religious studies at UVA. And we sat there having a barbecue, and things, of course, turned to spiritual things because, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Well, there you go. It goes that way. And we're sitting there talking, and he begins to explain to me and ask me his, his understanding of, of Christianity and begins to ask me questions about it. And I, I promise you to this day, I'm not making any of this up. We sat there in my backyard talking about these things, and he told me about his mom, who was a dedicated servant at their church. He told me about how after his, his biological father had passed away and left him a lot of money, his mom used that money and gave a ton of that money to the church and they built a part of that church for the teens in that church and put it under their family's name and that he believed when his mom died she would literally put in a good word for him with God. That because his mom was such a good Christian because he did not deny the fact that God existed because he would never dare deny the fact that Jesus was important he yet believed that he would stand before God and be made right for all of eternity because his mom had done so well. And certainly she could put a good word in for him. Friends, you and I are not made right before God because of the family we're born into. In Paul's day, it wasn't because you were simply a Jew. It's not because you're born now these days into a majority culture in a, in a Christian conservative environment. No, God accepts men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation the same way that he justified Abraham. It's by faith. The things that define us as believers in Christ is that we have put our faith in him alone and what he has done. Paul says God's no respecter of whatever ethnic boundary, whatever cultural boundary, whatever heritage boundary you want to try to put around him. His grace knows no boundary. And here's the thing. Here's where Paul goes with this. Paul says this plan of grace, God's plan of grace for all the peoples on the earth, it's not a plan that he made up on the fly. He didn't look around and see what was happening on the earth and decide, oh, I need to change what I had intended to do. Now, here's the plan of redemption. Here's the plan of salvation. No, this has always been God's plan. Look at verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul goes back to the Bible again and he quotes Genesis chapter 12. We, we looked at it last week. This was the gospel proclaimed in the time of Abraham. In you and through what I'm going to do in you and through you, all nations, all ethnicities on the face of the earth are going to be blessed. So Paul holds Abraham up as we started to look at last week. He, he holds him up just as those Judaizers have been holding Abraham up and saying, yes, you've believed in Christ, but now you need to do this, that, and the other and look like Abraham if you really are going to be accepted before God. Paul says, let me take Abe. And he holds Abe up and shows that for all time, God has always made his people right before him, not by what they've done, but by faith. And Paul says, this is the way it's always been. From the very beginning of God's people, God's people, the Israelites, coming from Abraham. Abe was saved by grace through faith just like you. He wasn't saved by his obedience. He wasn't saved by his goodness or his achievements. He was made righteous by faith. It's always been that way. God's people have always been saved by faith. So, so Paul's saying the message that I've proclaimed to you, the gospel that I've preached to you, it's not new. I didn't create it. Like he said earlier, I didn't learn it from someone else. It's been testified to by God through the ages from his word. But Paul's anticipating something. He's anticipating a little resistance from those who would listen to this being read. He's anticipating, in some sense, the questions or the thoughts that might, that might churn in the minds of the people that would hear this as, they, as this letter would come to him. Really, Paul? 
I mean, just how bad is it for me to want to take what Christ has done for me and try to shore it up, to put a little insurance around it? I mean, for me to do all these things and think that just in case the cross wasn't enough, I've got all these other things around here that I can lean into. I mean, how bad is it, Paul, to want to be able to lean a little bit into what I've done just in case what Jesus has done isn't, that, isn't enough? Is it, is it really that bad? And Paul's anticipating this reality in our hearts, and he's going to say, yes, it really is that bad. When good things become main things, when you begin to lean into any aspect of your obedience towards God or your moral behavior or any of the things like we read earlier this morning from the book, when you begin to lean into any of those things, believing that they are what is going to make you right before God, even if you're trying to lean into them and into Christ at the same time, it's not going to go well for you. Good things, when they become main things, become very bad things. And so Paul is going to extend his argument to the questions that people are having in their minds and in their hearts, and he's going to say simply this, there are only two ways for you and I to live. And the ways for you and I to live, they're mutually exclusive of each other. And they lead to entirely different results. One leads to a blessing and one leads to a curse. Those who are determined in any way to lean into their own work to find themselves right before God will in the end find themselves cursed. And those who lean with all they are, throw themselves wholly into the work of Christ for them before God will find themselves blessed. And here's what you need to hear. Paul has a tremendously intense concern for these churches out of love because whichever message we choose to believe will shape the trajectory of our life now and for eternity. What you're choosing to believe now, which message you're believing now, what you're leaning into now is shaping the way you think, it's shaping your emotions, it's shaping your logic, it's shaping the way you view the world, it's shaping everything about you. You can live your life seeing Christ as one aspect of your salvation and it's your work to shore up what he's done or you can live your life by faith in him alone. Those are the only two options. Listen to what Paul says. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. For, for all who rely, for all who live by, for all who lean into the works of the law, their obedience, their efforts, they're under a curse. And Paul's continuing his argument by going back to Scripture again. Everything Paul's going to say, he's going to build as an argument from God's Word. He's going back here to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, which is a fascinating moment in the history of God's people. We don't have time to go into it in great detail, but, but they had crossed the river, they were in the land of promise, and they were going to renew the covenant that God had made with them through Moses. And so here's what God tells them to do. He says, split the 12 tribes up into two groups, six on one side, six on the other. One go up one side of Mount Gerizim, one go up one side of Mount Ebal. And instead of being on two separate sides of a valley looking at each other and worshiping by singing back and forth like God's people would do in antiphonal choirs, one side recites the curses of disobedience to God's covenant, and one side recites the blessings of obedience to God's covenant. And they renew together before the Lord what God had said to them. And Paul takes the end there in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 26, and quotes it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, this is, this is God's judgment against the sinfulness of humanity. See, God required nothing less than perfect obedience to his law. Perfect adherence to his law. You had to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It didn't matter if you were Israelite or a Gentile. You were required by God to consistently obey and do in its entirety all of God's law. So Paul's presupposing something. Who can do that? Which one of you has actually done that? Well, no one. So Paul's taking them to what they already know to be true, exposing again that everyone without exception is condemned by the curse of God's law. What's the point? 
Why would you ever, ever try to base your salvation, your acceptance, your righteousness before God on your ability to keep the law? Knowing that God required perfect and consistent adherence to every aspect of his word, why in the world would you try to base any aspect of your acceptance before God on your ability to do it? You know you. Paul says it's the height of foolishness. Why lean into anything that you think you can do to shore up any deficiency that might be present in what Christ has done? One writer will say this, everyone who depends on the law is under a curse because the law curses everyone who breaks it, which everyone does. So ironically, by advocating obedience to the law, these Judaizers were not escaping God's curse, but what? They're actually incurring it. By encouraging people to stand before God righteous by what they had done rather than the simplicity of faith alone and what God has done for them through Christ, they're not escaping the curse that's resident in the law. They're actually heaping it upon themselves because the law requires perfect adherence. Paul's saying the law can't save you. Your busyness can't save you. Your relationships, they can't save you. All the ways you volunteer and all the ways you serve, it alone can't save you. The more you try to lean into anything that you do thinking that it earns you anything before God, the more, Paul says, it actually ends up cursing you. And he's going to keep going. Look at verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, and he's going to go back to the Old Testament again. Now he's going to go to the prophets. Habakkuk chapter 2. The righteous, he said, shall live by faith. So he's continuing his Bible lesson with these churches to help them see that what he had proclaimed to them, the simplicity of the gospel, has been what God has been proclaiming throughout the history of man. Habakkuk was mad. Israel had been loved by God. God had promised his covenant with them. They had continued to be unfaithful to God. God had continued to rescue them, but now they were out of place where they had turned their back on God again, and the Babylonians had come in and taken the northern half of Israel into captivity, and the south was on the edge as well. And Habakkuk's mad. And God responds to Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2. And God condemns the self-righteousness and the puffed-up chests of the Babylonians who had conquered them. But then God didn't say to those, that faithful remnant that's still there, just, just try harder. If you double down on your efforts to be obedient to my law and you get to the right spot, you cross the right line, then I can rescue you. White-knuckle it a little bit more and the time of my blessing will come. No, God says the same thing he's always said. The righteous, just like Abraham, the righteous will live by faith. See, from the patriarchs all the way to the prophets, the message has been the same. That's what Paul's saying. Righteousness and justification before God, right standing with God, is not by anything you do. It comes by faith. He didn't make it up. It's been God's plan all along. But he's not done. He's going to give them one more Old Testament lesson to try to make it that much more clear. He knows the pushback in the heart to want some kind of understanding credit for this kind of thing. Really, is it that bad, Paul? Paul's saying, if you're going to choose to live by your best efforts, if you're going to lean in any way into what you are able to do to make yourself right before God, if you think you can add some kind of insurance to what God has done for you through Christ, you will ultimately present yourself with an obstacle that becomes too great for you to ever be able to get over. You are creating for yourself a problem, a dilemma, digging yourself into a hole, whatever metaphor you want to use, you are putting yourself in a position that you can never get yourself out of. Paul's going to quote Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Look at verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you are going to insist in taking some level of credit for making yourself right before God, justified before God, if you're going to live by that, 
You're going to die by it too. If you choose in any way to measure yourself before God for your justification by what you do, you're going to die by your inability to do it perfectly. You're either going to live by faith in Christ. You're going to live by faith leaning into with all that you are what God has done for you through his son to make you right before him completely and totally forever. Or you're going to lean into your own ability to shore up what Jesus might have done to make yourself right before God. And they end in two different ways, Paul says. If you're going to lean into your own best effort in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you are going to have to do it perfectly in every way forever. If you're going to live by it, you're going to die by it. Faith and works present two separate ways of living. They operate by two entirely different principles. You live by what you have believed or you live by what you do. And they're mutually exclusive. I love how Philip Ryken puts it. This was a helpful example. He said, faith and works are like a man who has one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. And as the boat starts to pull away from the dock, you've got to make a choice. There comes a point, they're mutually exclusive. You can't stay like that forever. You're gonna have to make a choice or else you're gonna end up in the water. Calvin's going to say the same thing. Calvin's going to say the law justifies the one who fulfills all of its commands. Whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and can rely on nothing but Christ alone. To be justified by your own merit and by the grace of another are entirely irreconcilable. It can't be both. It can't be, yes, I believe in God's grace to me through his work for me, through his son, but I've got to do these things to make sure it's enough. It's mutually exclusive. It's shifting away from the simplicity of what God's done for you in Christ. It's what's happening in those narratives that we read. The gospel is being reduced. It's being shifted. It's being changed. And ultimately, it's no gospel at all. That's how Paul started the letter. There's no good news in that at all. See, Paul's trying to expose something to them. He's trying to reason with them in such a way based on what they already know to be true that they can see the foolishness of what they're actually doing. See, Paul's taking them back to what they heard in the beginning, that ultimately every single person on the face of the earth have sinned, he'll tell the church in Rome, and fallen short of the glory of God. And every single person on the face of the earth having fallen short of the glory of God is under the curse of God's law. And so the question ultimately becomes, the place he's taking them to, if that's the case, and if I'm shifting away from confidence in in Christ and I begin to lean into myself and I find myself dangerously on the precipice of incurring the curse of God, is there any hope? I mean, if we all find ourselves guilty of falling short of God's word and the curse, the punishment, being disobedient to God's covenant with his people is curse, is the wrath of God. Is there any hope? Friends, you need to hear Paul pleading with you when he wrote this letter to these churches, pleading with them. I don't want curse for you, Paul's saying. I want blessing for you. God's plan for Your joy for your salvation, for his glory, has always been to save you by his grace through faith in his son. You're not without hope. No matter where you are with God, when you came into this place this morning, just like Paul's writing to these churches, you're not without hope. If you've been asleep all morning, if the minute I began to talk, your eyes began to shut, wake up. I I don't hold it against you at all, but you need to wake up and get on the edge of your seat because what Paul's about to say is the greatest news in one sentence you're ever going to hear. You're never going to hear anything better in one sentence. It's the heart of Christianity. It's stunning. And if you listen to it, you'll see the beauty in it. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And again, Paul's not making it up. He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. This was the law that God had given his people. If a man's committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree. And his body shall not remain on the tree all night, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed 
by God. They didn't punish the man who had violated God's law by hanging him. They punished him normally according to the law by stoning him to death. But then they would take his body and hang it on a tree. And hanging it on a tree was putting before the eyes of all of God's people that this criminal is cursed by God. He has endured the curse of his disobedience to God's covenant. What Paul just said is that every single person on the face of the earth is guilty of violating God's law in more ways than you could ever fathom. And the consequence for violating God's law is the curse of God's wrath. At any time you want to lean into your best effort to be obedient to God's law for them back then or for you right now, in any way you do it imperfectly, you find yourself guilty of the same curse. What hope is there? And Paul said in the most staggering of ways, the Son of God came. And on this earth, he lived a sinless life of perfect obedience to God's law. Not just in deed, but in heart and in motive. In every way possible, Jesus lived the life that you and I were created by God to live. Then he willingly gave his life as our ransom from the bondage of sin and death. You and I find ourselves in the bondage of our disobedience, of our sin, and deserving of the curse of God for our breaking of his covenant to us. And Paul said in the most staggering of ways, Jesus gave himself up in our place for our sin to redeem us from the curse of the law that we deserve. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. What it means is that the curse of the law, the, the wrath of God, though Jesus never sinned, he became cursed for us. What that means is that God treated him as though he was cursed, as though he was a lawbreaker, Jesus substituted himself in our place for our sins and he suffered the curse that we deserve. Paul will tell the church in Corinth, God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin. So that you and I, who know plenty of sin, who are intimately acquainted with sin, could be, become the righteousness of God in Christ. On the cross, Jesus took our curse he became liable for everything that you and I are actually liable for. If you think about it in the argument that Paul made, Jesus was condemned by the very curses that God's people shouted back and forth to each other back on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Every single evil thought, every single even intention, every single aspect of our sin, of every person in this room and in all of history, every single piece of it, every fearful, angry, bitter word, God's just and righteous wrath towards those things were placed upon his son on the cross. Here's what's so beautiful about it. Here's what's so stunning, at least to me, about it. For all who, by the grace of God, place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for their salvation, for their righteousness before God, in the same supernatural way that God made his son who knew no sin to become sin, to be cursed for us, God takes his perfect obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, and he assigns it to us. He imputes it to us. He takes our curse. He gives us his righteousness. You've got to catch this. He doesn't just take away your sin. So many times when we talk about the gospel, this is where it ends. He doesn't just take away your sin, even though that would be enough. He gives you his perfect record. The only one ever able to obey perfectly, says, now what I've done, everything that I've done, the delight and the obedience in my Father, it's yours. For those who lash themselves to me, it's yours. He took our curse. He clothes us with his righteousness. 
The Son of God, fully man, fully God, hear this, God endured God's own curse to save us from our sins. So Paul's saying, that's where you look. All these things you think you're supposed to do, all these things they're telling you you have to do, all these things you think you're supposed to build around yourself to make yourself right before God, Paul says, no, you have to look away from those things. This is where you look. This is where your eyes get fixed. This is it. This is who you put your faith in. Look there. The curse is lifted. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, verse 14, so that. Paul's going to bring this part of his argument to a head. So that in Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, righteousness, justification might come to the Gentiles, all the nations, all the ethnicities on the face of the earth, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul wants God's people to marvel at the eternal grace of God, the blessing of righteousness. It, it knows no bounds that you and I can put around it. It's for anyone and everyone who by God's grace would place their faith in the person of Jesus. You can't find that righteousness by anything that you can do. You can't find it by accumulating any particular track record of your own. You can't strengthen it or shore it up by anything that you do for God. You simply receive it by faith and you lean into it with all that you are. And by God's grace, you enjoy it. You enjoy it. Friends, you and I come up with so many different ways. We build so many different ladders that we think will enable us to scale the heights up into the presence of God. And all along the way, the more we try to do and the more we try to climb, we might think we need a little shove of grace along the way. But we've got it straight. God will get his hands under us. He'll, he'll push us up when we get ourselves stuck. We so easily fail to see that no matter how hard we try, we always come up short. That's why I love chapter 3, Galatians. Paul uses the word faith 15 times. Nine times in verses 1 through 14. Do you think he has a point to make? Paul wants to eradicate any sense that exists in our hearts of reliance on our own obedience as a means of salvation. Quite literally, in this part of his argument, faith gets the last word. And so if you're here this morning and you're you're a follower of Christ. Let me just ask you, when you think back on those narratives that we read and you think about the life that you live, in what ways do you struggle to believe the simplicity of the gospel? I mean, what, what things, what causes you to slip back into the mode of trusting in your own good works to make you right before God? What kind of things in your life are you prone to rely on besides Christ to make you righteous? What causes you to doubt that you're accepted by God simply because you've put your faith in Christ, what he's done for you through his life, his death, his resurrection? If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ, we're glad that you're here. But let me ask you this. What's keeping you from believing in Jesus? I mean, what's the biggest hurdle for you to put your faith in Christ right now? What's keeping you, like we said to the Apostle Paul a few weeks ago, from pushing all your chips across the table, putting them all in on Jesus and say, I'm giving up on everything else to save me. What's keeping you from looking to him? Friends, Paul's been clear. If we're not looking to Christ to be our savior, we're looking to something else. We're looking to something. And if it's not Jesus, who or what is it? Paul's invitation to the churches then as he was building this argument is the same thing it is to us this morning even when I cut his argument short. Will you put your trust in Christ? Will you believe in the simplicity of the gospel? Will you lean into with everything that you are what God has done for you in your place through his son as your substitute? Will you believe that it's sufficient for you? Friends, the gospel is the greatest news because in the grace of God, he has secured our redemption through his son. 
He hasn't just made it possible for you and I to be saved, leaving us to figure out how we do our part to finish up or secure what he started. That's a lie. No, he has saved us, redeemed us, made us right through his son, and he calls us to rest in the finished work of the cross. Friends, Paul calls us to look to Christ by faith, to look to him, to look to nothing else, and to trust that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a chance to respond this morning. Father, as we prepare to to respond to your word this morning, we're we're going to come and we're going to receive a reminder of your grace to us in redeeming us from the curse of the law by, by receiving communion this morning. And as we, as we take the bread and remember the body of Jesus broken, as we dip it in the cup, remembering the, the blood that was spilled for our forgiveness, I pray that your people would come this morning to receive communion in faith. Lord, help us. Help us in our places of unbelief. Help us to come to receive communion this morning, believing that even for us, The sacrifice of your son was sufficient to redeem us from the curse of the law. Father, in any ways that we're failing to believe that, in any ways we struggle to put our hope in in your son alone to save us, would you please meet us there now? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, expose those places in our heart and take us by the hand to repentance and confidence and faith in your son? Lord, as we come this morning, as we receive communion, as as we sing as a response, Lord, would our hope, would our confidence, would it rest securely and be delighted in the work you've done for us through your Son? We ask this in his name, for his glory, for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.